Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mel Fabregas from the Veritas Show at VeritasShow.com with an important update. On July 5th, day 74, since the Gulf of Mexico oil disaster occurred, I sat down with Dr. Brooks Agnew in Trout Lake, Washington, to discuss the ecological, economic, and societal implications this event will have on the United States and the international community. Also present was geologist Benjamin Cavallari, who assisted in the production of this interview. A video of this interview will be available soon. In the interest of time, I decided to make this audio available as soon as possible. You may experience some audio distortion throughout the interview. Please remember that Veritas survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. So please go to VeritasShow.com and click on subscribe. This will continue, allowing us to report what you won't hear in the mainstream media. You have my permission to post this particular interview everywhere by linking to our website, VeritasShow.com. Dr. Brooks Agnew was one of the most successful scientists with ground-probing radar technology in the nation for oil and gas exploration. Similar technology is currently utilized in the Mars Express program. He is the author of thousands of technical papers, seminars, documentaries, or books on precision measurement and exploration into the mysteries of the universe and of the Earth. He's the host of X Squared Radio. And now, let's go to our latest report. Hello, I'm Mel Fabregas from The Veritas Show, and I'm here once again. I have the privilege to be with Dr. Brooks Agnew. Welcome back to Veritas, uh, Brooks. Thank you very much. And behind the camera, also, we have one of, uh, I call him one of the Veritas Advisory Council members, Benjamin Cavallari, who's going to be joining us. Uh, he is a geologist, correct? Correct. And uh, I had to take a few minutes with, uh, with may I call you Brooks? Sure. With Brooks, because he's an expert in many things, and we're talking about one of the most important and crucial pieces of news these days, and is the uh, BP oil spill. We call it the the oil volcano. What is happening now, Brooks? Where do you see this going in the next few weeks? Well, they're going to have to get a handle on actually plugging the the geyser that's going on in the bottom of the ocean. Now, you got to understand, this formation, this geology is under a tremendous amount of pressure. At the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico, you're talking about fourteen to 1,500 atmospheres of pressure. Yet that oil is still freely flowing under enough, enough gas drive to be considered a geyser flowing into the Gulf of Mexico unfettered. There is no way to stop it unless they can get some kind of pipe down in that casing to fill it with concrete or drill horizontally into the hole and pump concrete into the hole from underneath. Why is this substance brownish, reddish, as opposed to what we're used to, the black tar? Well, oil comes in a lot of different grades. There's light, sweet, crude, which is what we get uh, from some formations in the United States. It's what we import from Saudi Arabia. Other grades of oil are very high-grade, very expensive oil in the sense that they're good for chemical production. They're high in aromatics, high in metals. That's what this oil is. It's very expensive, very high-grade oil, and that's why it appears reddish on the surface of the ocean. Would you say that what's coming out may have some effect to make the piping? For example, when you're painting a car or, or a bicycle, you, you sandblast it, 
Do you think this is happening to the pipes? Uh, the casing that they put in there is pretty inert to oil. Oil is uh, not really oxidative when it comes to metal. Metal can last for 100 years in the presence of this kind of oil. The issue is that there's no infrastructure down there to actually shut it off. But is sediment is, I heard that some rocks are pumping in, sand may be coming in. When that hits the piping, would that be causing erosion? Yes, it can cause what's called etching. Mm -hmm. And uh, once you get a thin place in the casing, if you, uh, for instance, shut off a valve at the top of the casing, it can blow through the casing and come around the outside of the casing. That was my point. I'm not an expert, but I think that if this continues and there's etching and you try to cap it, what could happen on a worst-case scenario below? Well, it would probably breach the casing. Uh, the worst case is when you shut it off up above and the pressure is so high that it pushes the casing out of the hole. Now, usually, if they've done this well the right way, they have pushed that casing well down into the hole and they have cemented that casing into place. So that can't happen. But uh, sometimes shortcuts are taken Wells are not what we call long string, which is where they screw several joints of casing together and shove it into the hole. Uh, if they think that the rock is fairly good structure, they will just put a few joints of casing in the hole and use the rock itself as the casing for the hole. And now, a few weeks ago, James Fox was on my show, and we discussed uh, the arrest, the harassment, and we have confirmed that BP is using... Wackenhut. And they are the ones who are enforcing a lot of the rules from BP. If anybody comes close to any of the employees, it is Wackenhut who comes in and deters you or threatens you with arrest. How can a private contractor as Wackenhut enforce the law? Well, it's, it's a condition of paranoia that happens with government. Government doesn't want the liability of taking over this well. When officials look at the liability, and believe me, it's significant. They look around for experts that have the wherewithal, especially the monetary wherewithal, to handle the liability of this. The only player in the field right now is either BP or Chevron, and both of them are applying assets to try to solve this disaster. Why do you think that so many countries who have come forward to provide help, assistance, uh, we have turned them down. Why? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, on the one hand, we have the Coast Guard, who monitors the seaworthiness of any vessels that come into our waters. That is to say, waters inside 200 miles off the coast. In many cases, those ships that have come into our waters are not, quote, seaworthy, not enough life vests, not enough fire extinguishers. And so those ships are held off 24, 48, sometimes 72 hours while that additional equipment is put on the ship where the Coast Guard will allow them to go to work. Have we seen any other countries participating in the cleanup uh, uh, efforts right now? I'm really unaware of the international effort. Uh, I'm sure there uh, is an international effort. There are certainly oil rigs all over the world, off the coast of England, off the coast of Nova Scotia. Uh, and I would think that some of these experts at containing this kind of spill are trying to come into the area and help. A few uh, years ago, a similar situation happened in Russia. Not, Of course, not uh, on the ocean, uh, 5,000 feet, but it had happened 
on uh, on uh, uh, land, and they were able to contain the the uh, the spill. Have we approached the Russians to to get to, to quote unquote pick their brains? I don't know if we have or not. I know Russia's one of the OPEC nations. They're one of the great oil producers. This is not uh, the greatest oil spill that we've ever had. We've had spills in Southern California, for instance, that were 100,000 barrels a day that literally filled an entire valley with oil. People were rowing boats across it. They were uh, pumping oil into trucks for months and months until the geyser finally quit. Then all that oil was pumped up and then uh, the soil was simply bulldozed over and now there's houses there today. That was probably the worst oil spill in U.S. history. That and and uh, uh, the original geyser that happened down in Texas that started the whole oil rush down there in the late 1800s. But this is the worst oil spill at sea. And it it has some special hazards to it because the opening to the well is a mile deep in the water. This makes it inaccessible to any kind of manned vehicle except maybe a special two-man sub. And there have been some suggestions, and this is quite frustrating to me, because the way to plug this well is to put a, a pump casing or pump pipe down into that hole several hundred feet and pump concrete into that hole. But to try to hit an 8 to 10 inch pipe from a mile up above is like trying to drop a thread in through a needle from the top of a room. You need to have some kind of craft right at the opening of that well to grab that pipe and feed it into the hole. Now that would be a very leading edge solution that the oil companies have never tried. And it's pretty widely known that all of the techniques that the oil companies are using right now to stop the oil from coming out of that hole have failed repeatedly many times all over the world. They have never worked. What they have usually done is wait for the geyser to play out. In other words, the gas drive to come off of the well so that it finally stops blowing like a volcano. Or they have drilled in from the sides and pumped concrete in. That's only been successful in water up to 500 feet deep, not 5,000 feet deep. What happens after, if this continues to spill, and I don't know how many barrels of oil may be under the 5,000 feet, but what is costing down there? If Is there a possibility that water may come in contact with the heated bottom, if you will, and cause a massive steam explosion? There is a risk if the pressure comes off of this well that gases that are currently in liquid form underneath there would reach a low enough pressure point to where they would flash to gas. If that happens, you could see a super volcano kind of explosion where this liquid doesn't flash off a little bit at a time. It flashes off suddenly and cataclysmically. I hate to even fathom of how this scenario could pan out. But take us to that scenario. If this happens, how can we watch a movie in our mind's eye? Well, to, to draw a comparison, many people are familiar with the latent supervolcano underneath Yellowstone. 
this is a very similar situation. You have a lot of gases that are under pressure. They're liquefied deep underneath Yellowstone. If that were to breach somehow and the pressure were to lower to the point to where that liquid could flash to gas, it would expand to at least a thousand times its volume. The supervolcano would be enough to spread ash all the way to the eastern side of Nebraska. So if this were to happen in the Gulf of Mexico, I would think we would probably lose the Gulf of Mexico as a, a viable ecology. What about the populations of the area, the tsunami? How big can a wave uh, come towards the shores of Florida, for example? If you had an explosion of that size, less than 50 miles off the coast, uh, you would have you know, less than 10 minutes warning. You would have a tsunami maybe 150 feet high. And about 300 miles per hour? It could be 300 miles an hour if the shock wave is, is uh, strong enough. But even 75 miles an hour would be devastating. How far inland would a wave that size go? Well, there are no natural barriers down there. So uh, a, a tidal wave of, of 75 to 100 feet high traveling at 100 miles an hour would probably go 20 miles inland. The uh, storm surge from a hurricane is only a few feet And you saw what what Katrina did. Uh, we're talking about a, a sudden wall of water, not a storm surge. This would turn 20 miles of coastline into a sandbar. And I hate to even start the conspiracy part of this, but it's no longer a conspiracy in my opinion. We look at the presidents. We look at uh, Goldman Sachs selling 44% of their BP shares. We see Wachovia, which is on what Wells Fargo sold 97% of their shares. Other private asset management companies sold 90% of their BP shares. The CEO, Tony Hayward, sold one-third of his shares and paid his mansion in Kent, England. How can all these companies do this unless they have some sort of knowledge of what was coming? Well, that's a really good question, and the trail doesn't end there. You have Transocean that shortly before this disaster doubled the insurance on Deepwater Horizon, which is the rig that's had this problem. They made $270 million on this disaster just from the payoff of the insurance. You had BP purchasing Boots and Coots, which is a specialty company that only specializes in rig fires. They're the ones that put out 30% of the fires in Iraq when, when uh, Gulf, War Gulf War One. Uh, they also had a lot of experience in uh, ocean rig fires and in plugging ocean rig leaks. So this is not a highly profitable company, but it's a highly specialty uh, skilled for emergency services company. It's so strange that all of the events that you just described and the one that I added to it took place within a three to four month period prior to this occurring. Now, this is a tremendous amount of money, about a half a billion dollars that changed hands prior to this disaster happening. What it leads the world to believe is it is a disaster, true enough, but it was no accident. And some people say, don't make any comparisons to 9-11. Don't say this was a false flag. But I'm seeing some of the commonalities, Brooks, between this event and 9-11. First of all, the word that was used back in 9-11, if you turn on the news, was incompetence. 
incompetence, incompetence. If you go to the TV now, that is the word that we're hearing now, incompetence, incompetence. We all remember the double insurance policies on the tower, which were to expire the day of the quote-unquote attacks, and now we see the same scenario here. If this was pre-planned, in your opinion, and I, don't, I know you probably don't go to speculation, what is the purpose? That's a good question. If it was pre-planned, it would make sense that you would see some kind of after event, some kind of key as to why it might have been planned. And lo and behold, we have two things that have recently occurred. Number one was uh, President Obama transferred $2.2 billion to Petrobras in Brazil to drill where? Deep water off the coast of Brazil. The second thing that we saw happen was the moratorium to suspend 33 exploratory wells that were taking place in the Gulf of Mexico and any additional drilling that was going on in the Gulf of Mexico. This suspended over $350 million a month in payroll for oil service workers in that area. That's gone. That income will never come back. It'll be rebid and let to someone else, if ever. How about the platforms and all those mortgages? Well, what we're talking about here is about $2.2 trillion worth of surface assets and about $10 trillion in oil assets beneath the floor of the Gulf of Mexico. Now, it's commonly known across the world that the United States consumes about 20% of the world's oil supply. And yet currently, we only have 2% of the oil's reserves. That's not necessarily true. It's not that we don't have the reserves in the ground. It's that we don't have the refining capacity to take care of the oil that we would produce. We have to buy either very high-grade crude or partially refined crude from overseas in order to supplement our oil needs here in this country. There has not been a new refinery built in over 25 years in the United States. All the refineries have been upgraded, they've been reinvested in, they've had new processes added to them, but nobody wants a refinery in their backyard. So it would seem that they would need some real estate very close to these rigs that could be used to build refineries on in order to increase the capacity of the United States and establish very badly needed oil independence for this country. Brooks, I saw a map that somebody sent me where it shows a cluster of all, all the oil platforms in the Gulf, and they're almost one next to each other. This, um, uh, what was the name of, what's the name of the oil platform? The... Deepwater Horizon. Deepwater Horizon is a single spot very, very far away from all the other ones. And I find it very coincidental that none of the other, there are thousands of them, okay? None of the other ones failed, but this one failed. Well, it is peculiar. And normally what happens when a, a, a new reserve is found by one rig is they will come in and they will do what's called checkerboarding. They will step off the minimum distance that re that's required by the EPA, and they will drill another well, and then another, and another. And usually the investment profile changes in these wells. It's because the first well is a very high-risk well. Normally, that well goes bankrupt. The other wells are the ones that make money. But like I said, the ownership changes hands. 
Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.